to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and here we are at part 7 in our series on the book of Exodus. There's a famous idea, as we learn even from one of Jesus' parables, that persistence tends to pay off. But before that happens, or before that can happen, we need to get used to rejection. We all know that rejection is part of life. For example, William Golding's famous Lord of the Flies uh, novel was rejected 20 times before a publisher took the bait. Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind was rejected 38 times. Robert Prizig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was rejected 121 times before someone published that, and it took Gertrude Stein 22 years of writing poetry before someone thought that it was a good idea to get her work out into the world. So sometimes you try to get what you want and you fail to get what you want, and the pain that results is not just the pain of not getting what you want, it's also the pain of realizing that your model for getting what you want isn't the right one. Or, perhaps it is the right one, but the timing isn't right. Or, maybe the model is right, but the thing you want isn't. We all have to learn to deal with rejection, and it seems desirable to me, at least, that we should deal with it in a kind of positive way, without letting it define us. There's even a chance that rejection can be good for us. Moses and Aaron ask Pharaoh to let their people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Pharaoh then ups the workload uh, for Israel. So Moses and Aaron repeat the request. And Pharaoh says, no, again. And then ups the workload again. And Moses and Aaron then decide on God's prompting to up the ante. God says to Moses that he has made him, Moses, like God to Pharaoh. And Aaron then is God's, that is Moses' prophet, this is an amazing line right at the beginning of Exodus 7. It's almost blasphemous, except we aren't that shocked because God is the one committing the blasphemy. The analogy between God and Moses reveals a few things. Moses, like God, is the outsider, the one who does not conform to expectation, the one who represents authority whilst simultaneously subverting and even distrusting authority. Moses is, in a way, a kind of precursor to God's incarnation. His life is sacramental in that it points to a kind of heaven on earth, or a state of perfection within a kind of corrupted human order. Moses is a man, and so much more than a man. He is a force to be reckoned with. Also, Moses is very, very old, like God, give or take the qualitative difference between finitude and infinity, the text tells us that he is 80 when he speaks to Pharaoh, and Aaron is 83. <laughs> and I guess uh, the message of this is that if you have any desire to retire, forget about it. You may end up doing your best work when you're an octogenarian. To strike the fear of God into Pharaoh's rock-hard heart, God performs a miracle. He repeats what he had shown uh, Moses back at the burning bush. Since Aaron is the prophet in this scene and Moses is God, Aaron casts his rod down on the ground right in front of the Pharaoh, and immediately the overgrown twig turns into an overgrown snake. If someone had done this in front of me, I would have been, among other things, at least a little surprised. But Pharaoh is 
completely unperturbed. He calls to his resident wizards, because every pharaoh has a few re resident wizards, and he tells them to repeat what they see in front of them. So, with access to their own magic arts, they turn their own staffs into snakes. What we have here, then, is pure mimesis, pure imitation. What is done by one is copied by others. This is a small detail, but it gives us a clear insight into what follows. There is a mimetic rivalry between Egypt and Israel, between the puny god Pharaoh and the symbol of God Moses, and of course God himself. And what is done by one is going to be imitated by the other. The fact that the wizards imitate this act of God is an indication of how evil always at first takes the same shape as the good, but not in exactly the same way. The serpent that is Aaron's staff is one, it's singular, but the serpents of the Egyptian wizards are multiple. Aaron's staff eats the other snakes, which is a symbol of reintegrating the evil of others into the simplicity of the good. It's, it's an act of, in a, in a way, destroying what is evil, destroying rivalrous desire. And part of what this hints at is the idea that what has been given over to evil by being, in a way, a bad imitation of what is good is never completely beyond redemption, no matter how terrible it may be. God then tells Moses to tell Aaron to take his staff and stretch it out over the waters of Egypt, because Pharaoh is not impressed by this whole snake show display thing. The result is that all water everywhere turns into blood, even water in jars of wood and stone. And this ends up killing the fish. The Egyptian magicians, already in a rivalrous state of mind, repeat this act. If there were any water left, they found a way to turn it into blood too. And if you're paying attention to this, this is actually a joke. Because they're using their magic to sabotage themselves, even further than what has already been done. And well, I think this is a highly perceptive thing to observe about human nature in general. People will often repeat wrongs done against themselves in a way that further contributes to their own already poor state of being. I think this is one of the meanings of the so-called Matthew effect in sociology, which states that, well, this is actually from the New Testament, to those who have, more will be given, and to those who have not, even what they have will be taken away. The idea is that it's natural to internalize the desires that have led you into your current state, whether positive or negative. If the field of desires surrounding you denigrate your being, make you feel less than you are, well, the, you will in all likelihood end up repeating those desires. You will end up exacerbating that state of denigrated being. And if the field of desires surrounding you has elevated you and built you up, well then, you're, you're probably going to end up repeating those desires, um, and you will continuously then be built up. So... If you have, more will be given to you, and if you have not, even what you have will be taken away. This idea, for interest's sake, has a mathematical complement in the form of Kolmogorov complexity. If we take the plagues that result from this mimetic duel between Egypt and God's people symbolically, especially through the lens of mimetic theory, we end up noticing that the plagues are more than likely symbolic of what René Girard refers to as a sacrificial crisis. 
Rivalrous desires imitated between two or more people, or two or more small groups of people, or two or more groups of people, larger groups too, easily escalate. What starts as a simple gesture, like, you know, one good turning of a rod into a serpent deserves another sort of thing, um, turns into a colossal mimetic force field of conflicts. And that is, in this story, rivers flowing with blood. So what starts as a very simple thing becomes much, much bigger. It escalates. As this would suggest, what we're reading here in this story may not be a literal event of water turning into a blood bath, but a symbolic indicator of violence erupting between Egypt and Israel. The slaves may just have decided to revolt. The water turning into blood image is one symbol out of many indicating peace giving way to violence. I mean, this is evident in the later plagues then. Pharaoh remains obstinate. So what follows is another nine plagues. After blood, a plague of frogs. After the frogs, gnats. After gnats, flies. After flies, the death of Egypt's livestock. Horses, donkeys, sheep, cows, goats, and so on. After the livestock, painful boils. After the boils, hail. After the hail, well, actually at this point, Pharaoh decides that he's been in the wrong, and he tells Moses that he gives up. He's really willing, he says, to let the people go. The strain on Egypt and on obviously on Pharaoh's psyche has just been too much. The mimetic rivalry between Egypt and Israel has escalated completely out of proportion, and Egypt needs a break. Moses tells Pharaoh that all the calamity faced by Egypt will stop immediately when he lets the people of Israel go. I mean, one of the obvious reasons for this is there will be no enemy to fight if they're not there to fight. So, you know, that's one one reason for, for the calm to set in. Unfortunately, when the plagues do in fact stop, Pharaoh changes his mind and he decides he would like to keep his slave labor. Before we get to what comes next in the story, let's look at another interpretation of the plagues, just because I think it's, it's really illuminating. It's the idea that many of the plagues represent the God of Israel's punishment on Egyptian gods, not just on Egypt, but, but on their gods. Water turning into blood may be symbolic of God's judgment on Hapi, the god of the Nile, and the plague of frogs may have been a judgment on Heket, the goddess of water, fertility and renewal, and so on. Another way to look at this is through the lens of the insight that our attention to anything will allow that thing to be good for us in accordance with the proportion with which we attend to it. I realize that's a very long-winded way of saying it, so let me repeat that. I think it's, a, uh, it's an insight that I found very helpful. Our attention to anything will allow that thing to be good for us in accordance with the proportion with which we attend to it. For example, if I drink a bit of wine in proportion to my own bodily being, um, the wine will be good. It will be a pleasure to drink it. If I drink more than what I can handle, there will be consequences. If I continue to drink copious amounts frequently without restraint, for whatever reason or lack of a reason, the god of wine will become a demon, and more literally speaking, an addiction. The addiction is not a sign that the wine is bad, or even that the god of wine is evil, but that I have made absolute what should have remained relative. In fact, my attention to the thing would have 
distorted in such a way that what was supposed to be good will in fact then be bad for me. I'm actually echoing an idea put forward really beautifully by David Foster Wallace in his very famous speech, This is Water, which you should listen to in its entirety because I think it's a it's one of the best commencement address addresses I've I've ever heard. I'll quote Wallace here at length because I think what he has to say is really pertinent to the story that we're in fact delving into. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Isn't that brilliant? It's so, so good. Egypt, in some respects, represents the principle of disproportion that I think all of this gets to. Everything is out of whack. Some people are doing just fine. Others are doing terribly. Some are sitting pretty while others are in a kind of torment. But I'm starting to think more and more these days that the issue of proportion is at the heart of many, even all, of the problems we are faced with in the world today. Proportion is not something we are, as human beings, naturally gifted to maintain. I mean, anyone you speak to talks about how they're struggling to balance their lives. Well, the fact is that I don't know anyone who has a perfectly balanced life. In fact, any object of our attention is already out of proportion with the rest of life. If you simply pay attention to something, it occupies your field of perception in a way that seems absolute. It's already too big just by focusing on it in a way. Our ordinary mode of perceiving easily misleads us into regarding what is most immediate as if it is actually most ultimate. I think this is actually part of what makes it so easy to generate an echo chamber on any social media platform or in your social relationships, in addition, of course, to the algorithms supplied and ready-made for us. Well, the plagues are a powerful symbol of disproportion. They are not so much sent by God, they are that in the story, obviously, but they are also examples of how God might end up giving us exactly what we want in keeping with the proportion that we absorb things in, which is already, as I said, out of proportion. The story, for me at least, is is not about a vengeful God, but about a God who lets people bear the full brunt of what they're actually striving after. Some interpreters have taken the plagues as natural phenomena, which I think is fair, 
But in terms of the symbolic reading that we've been working with so far, it's worth considering that working against the re reality of virtue doesn't just affect the human heart, but infects, but infects or affects the whole world. Nature rebels against the rebels in a way. Current ecological catastrophes faced by people are bound up in human action. As some scientists have speculated, the natural disasters that we've seen in more recent years seem to be responses to, that is, consequences of, human actions. The idea that there is a simple distinction between human beings and nature is no longer tenable. The state of humanity is the state of nature. I want to briefly return to an idea here that I've already mentioned because it comes back in the story, and that's the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. At first, as the story goes, Pharaoh is the one who is making the call about what happens. Then, the story tells us that God does, in fact, at a point, harden Pharaoh's heart. He seems to intervene and interrupt in his free will processes, so to speak. And then, as we've just come to, we have moments in which Pharaoh does have a chance to make a decision again. The rabbis read the idea of God, God hardening Pharaoh's heart as an indication of God's mercy, which I think is quite a fresh way of seeing it. Often, if we have an opportunity to fully experience the trauma of our own actions, the consequences of our own actions, we have a stronger chance of ultimately choosing to do the right thing. The poison, in a way, becomes the cure. Sometimes, in fact, the only way to know that you've had enough is when you've had too much. Pharaoh has every opportunity to go against his own foolish policies, but he, like a dog returning to its vomit, all too easily repeats his past mistakes. We should be paying very close attention to this, of course, because we too are capable of returning to our own idiocy. Um, there's a, actually a psychoanalytic notion that when what we're doing isn't working, often we'll end up wanting more of the same. We, we all too quickly will decide in favor of more of what doesn't work. Which is really silly, but when you really pay attention to human uh, behavior, you'll see that how true this is. Uh, people, instead of dialing down what isn't working, turn the volume up on it in a way. Because Pharaoh has decided yet again against the God of Israel, God hardens his heart yet again, and he follows that up with a few more plagues. Locusts and then darkness. This, quite obviously, infuriates Pharaoh. He tells Moses that he needs to depart from him and never appear before him again. In fact, he says that if Moses shows his face again, Pharaoh will read that as a sign that he wants to die. Moses will then get executed. Which is an indication that when mimetic rivalry escalates, the rival becomes an obstacle and is then viewed as something that needs to be removed from being itself. Interestingly enough, Support for Pharaoh, in fact, begins to wane. There are indications in the text that the people around him are actually starting to not trust him so much, think that he's not a good leader, which is a, a really profound thing, bearing in mind that the Pharaoh would have been regarded as a kind of god. We are told that while Pharaoh remains obstinate in his ways, Pharaoh's officials begin to gain a remarkable degree of admiration for Moses. This strikes me as a really powerful indication that when you're facing your enemies, and maybe, you know, in these days we don't have like the same, I guess, the same kind of en enemies that 
were known um, in the ancient world, our enemies are mostly sort of ideological enemies, I guess. If you do it well, if you handle the situation well and without becoming too riled up and you remain consistent in your determination to do what is right, there's a pretty good chance you'll be able to persuade those who normally would be against you. This is part of what it means to love the enemy. To do so is to presume that the enemy is, on some level, capable of being just as committed to the goodness of being as you might be. To love the enemy is also to love that part of ourselves that is still allied to our various Egypts. What happens next in the story is the final plague, which is accompanied by some rather significant festivals or rituals that become festivals. I'm going to need a bit more time to do these parts of the story any justice, so that will be the focus of the next episode. I also hope that these insights uh, that I'm putting down here are sparking some good uh, thinking for you and getting you to see some familiar images and familiar story patterns in, in a new light. If you do want to keep in touch, you can find me at uh, Twitter, um, at Duncan Rayburn. And if you want to support this podcast, I'd really appreciate that. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. I'll also put these things into the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for listening. It's, it's great to be able to share these ideas with you. And uh, I hope you have a really good Easter. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.